Welcome to Labor Intensive, a show about the labor movement in Canada. I am your host, Jody Tomchishin. On today's show, we have an interview with economist Jim Stanford. But first, the news. There is an interesting story involving Ontario coroners that I wanted to touch on. They have decided to unionize, voting 96% in favor of joining CUPE. However, it is currently illegal for doctors to unionize in Ontario, which I didn't know for whatever reason, but they filed a constitutional challenge along with their decision to unionize uh, in order to unionize, suggesting that I guess the law that prevents doctors from unionizing is unconstitutional. Their stated reason for wanting to unionize is a new computer program that has caused increased workloads, among other problems including lost data, which again is another way that automation is sold as if it is this great, efficient-making thing, but actually can end up hurting workers in various ways. The trial is set for November and could set an interesting precedent, so we will try to check back in when the time arrives. We'll see if our memory can last from here all the way until November. Fresh off the taxation and treasury board strikes, another PSAC group has voted 92% in favor of a strike mandate. This is Workers for the International Development Research Center. This is the first ever strike mandate for this bargaining unit. Very interesting to see where this goes. They represent roughly 215 members, so they're not as large as the taxation workers or the Treasury Board. Their job is to fund research and innovation for Canada's foreign affairs and development efforts. They are looking for parity with the Treasury Board in terms of wages, so they want to stay above inflation, which again is something that we constantly talk about, and they also want more job security. I am not fully sure when they will be in strike position, but I imagine it would be at least in a week. So we will see whether they will get a tentative agreement between now and then, or if they end up going on strike, and we will cover it if they do. Another important legal battle is happening as I record this podcast, actually, which is that the Progressive Conservative Government of Ontario is appealing to the Supreme Court of Ontario a lower court ruling which deemed their Bill 124 unconstitutional. Most people in Ontario who have been following union news probably have heard of Bill 124, but for those who are not aware of what this law does, Bill 124 limited public sector workers to a 1% annual wage increase, basically blocking unions and their members for asking for more than a 1% wage increase. The bill was passed in 2019 and was deemed unconstitutional in 2022. The judge argued that the law infringed on a union's right to collectively bargain, which I think that is pretty self-evident if you ask me. Just last week, an arbitrator awarded 45,000 hospital workers in Ontario with a 6.25% wage increase over two years to make up for the fact that they had their rights taken away from them with Bill 124. Of course, 6.25% is nowhere near inflation, but is at least better than the 2% they would have gotten over the same time. It is also possible that they would have gotten more if they were allowed to ask for more and go on strike for more. So, 
This is again, they you know, they had the rights taken away and they're being rewarded a wage increase, but like they had the rights taken away. It is likely if the Ontario Supreme Court upholds the lower court ruling and more of these arbitration rulings come forward, the province will eventually have to pay close to $8 billion in back pay for public sector workers that got screwed over because of this unconstitutional bill. However, a Supreme Court of Ontario ruling does not mean that this is the end of the fight for the progressive conservatives, uh, because they do have the option of appealing even that ruling to the Supreme Court of Canada if the Supreme Court of Ontario does not rule in their favor. When asked whether they would do this, of course, they didn't say whether they would or they wouldn't, but, you know, they're, they're probably going to do it. That's, <laughs> I mean, unless they, they think that they're absolutely going to lose at the Supreme Court of Canada and they don't want to waste the money or something, but, like, they've been fighting it this far, I only imagine that if they lose at the Supreme Court of Ontario, they will take it all the way. And we will keep covering it if they do. Lastly, I wanted to briefly mention that the ILWU, that is the International Longshore Workers Union, in America has reached a tentative agreement with their employer, the Pacific Maritime Association. I had mentioned last week that ILWU Canada voted overwhelmingly in favor of a strike, and they will be in legal strike position on June 24th. But it doesn't look like their American counterparts would be joining them on that strike if they do eventually strike. I did speak with someone this week about the ILWU labor disruptions, so stay tuned next week for that. I just wanted to keep all of you updated since it's big news that the ILWU America reached this tentative agreement. If you have any news you would like to share about your own union or local, bargaining updates or strike support or whatever, feel free to email laborintensivepod at gmail.com and I will include it on next week's show. For this week's interview, I sat down with Jim Stanford, an economist and director of the Center for Future Work. He also has written a great book called Economics for Everyone, which was originally published in 2008, but has been updated over the years. I sat down with Jim because I wanted to know a bit more about inflation. When it comes to workers negotiating their wages, they want to stay above inflation. This dynamic is always present in labor negotiations, but the discussion has become much more present in our collective consciousness after the increasing inflation that followed the COVID-19 pandemic. So I thought what better way to understand this topic than to speak to someone who actually studies this stuff. So, with all that being said, here is my interview with Jim Stanford. I have with me Jim Stanford. He is an economist and the director at the Center for Future Work, also the author of Economics for Everyone. Thank you so much for being here. My greatest pleasure, Jody. Thanks for having me. So I, I reached out to you in part because this is going to be a labor podcast. And one thing from my own experience in labor, but also because of the recent PSAC strike, is that wages are often in discussion and usually trying to keep wages above this magical term called inflation. So I think everyone is aware right now that inflation is higher than normal. And 
prices have increased because of that. So uh, because this is a labor podcast, I want to sort of like figure out what inflation is to sort of like demystify it so it can help people when they're negotiating with their employer, but also just help the general public understand what this is. So just from the very simple beginning to this, what is inflation? (laughs) Well, Jody, you and I in our day-to-day lives, we go out and buy a bunch of different stuff, don't we? Lots of different goods, uh, groceries, we pay rent, we buy clothes, uh, we pay for services, you know, whether it's our monthly cell phone bill or uh, a meal at the restaurant. Uh, So put all those things together, and that's what we call the bundle of different goods and services. Think about it, you know, you go shopping with a big basket and you fill the basket with different items. Uh, The Consumer Price Index is a a measure that Statistics Canada uh, produces every month that tries to capture the average price of all of the things that we put in our bundles as Canadian consumers. And uh, what inflation is, is simply an increase in the average price of that bundle from one month to the next or one year to the next. So uh, think of it as an increase in the average price of everything that we buy, weighted uh, by the uh, amount that we spend on each of those different things. I have noticed that there's this sort of like, uh, I guess, normal rate of inflation, which is around 2%. Or like, I, at least that's what I've read in media reports. I don't know if that, uh, you're the economist, so, mm. so maybe there's a better number. But I've seen like a standard rate of inflation at around 2%. Now, is that true? And like, why why is it that inflation is constant like that? Well, it isn't constant like that. That's exactly the problem that workers are facing today. It does go up and down. There's nothing magic about 2% as the rate of inflation. It is actually uh, a kind of an arbitrary policy that was put in place in Canada and many other countries, uh, really starting about 30 years ago now. Um, The Bank of Canada is the the federal government's bank that is in charge of uh, setting interest rates for the economy and regulating and supporting the activities of private banks and other, other duties. And uh, starting in the early 90s, they adopted a a policy called inflation targeting. Uh, And this is where they decided they're going to try and manage the overall economy to keep inflation at that 2% number. So for most of that 30-year period, not all, but for most of it, inflation did stick quite close to that 2%. More often than not, it was actually lower than 2%, which isn't necessarily a good thing. Uh, The 2% is supposed to be a target, not a ceiling. But in general, uh, the Bank of Canada was pretty strict on making sure inflation didn't go above the target. They didn't seem so worried about it going below the target. Uh, Now, there's a little bit of economic theory behind the 2%. Uh, The theory is that a little bit of inflation is a good thing, basically. You know, you don't want uh, very, very high rates of inflation. They're very stressful and cause great redistribution of income. Uh, between different groups in society. But a little bit of inflation is actually a good thing. It's kind of like oil or grease, if you like, that keeps an engine going. Uh, A little bit of lubrication for some of the changes and adaptations that occur all the time uh, in the economy. You know that uh, some things over time get cheaper, right? Not that many things, but a few things do get cheaper because of technology or new products introduced that are expensive at first, but then they become less expensive. Uh, at the same time, other things get more expensive. And those adjustments in uh, in what we call relative prices are easier to achieve when the overall inflation rate is going up a little bit. 
Um, now, the 2% number itself was completely arbitrary. There's been a little bit of history uh, looking at where did the 2% number come from. And it seems to have come from a, a, just an off-the-cuff statement that a, a central bank governor in New Zealand, of all places, made in the, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s to, to say, you know, I'd like to keep inflation at a low, steady level, maybe 2%. There really was no serious uh, study of whether it should be 2% or maybe it should be 5%. Who's to say what little bit of inflation is actually healthy? But, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, we kind of settled on the 2%, and that has been the Bank of Canada's official target since uh, 1991. Um, but they don't always hit the target. And the, the fact is there's many things affecting the overall rate of growth of prices of inflation that uh, the Bank of Canada can't always control. And that's exactly what we've seen with the COVID pandemic, uh, the whole uh, the pandemic, the lockdowns, the after effects of it, the supply chains that were disrupted, the industries that were shut down for a while. And then on top of that, we had the uh, invasion of Ukraine and a big shock in world energy prices. All of those things together just caused, uh, you know, dramatic uh, ripples, if you like, in the overall economy, one of which was a big outburst of inflation. So. The 2% number isn't magic. It's a deliberate target that's been chosen by the Bank of Canada with the approval of the federal government, which owns the Bank of Canada. And uh, in some ways, you know, we should actually be kind of rethinking that whole infatuation with 2% as a magic number. It could be there's a, a, another better way to approach inflation. But uh, that has been our history over the last 30 years. And that's why inflation shooting up after the pandemic, it reached 8% at peak in Canada in the summer of 2022. It's come down a lot since then, but uh, compared to what we had gotten used to, it was pretty shocking. Before we move into some of the causes, like you had mentioned already, the, the supply chain and stuff like this, uh, what? because you mentioned that it can be lower than the 2%, mm -hmm. but like... Is is deflation a problem? Like, w w I guess if it goes in the opposite direction and prices decrease overwhelmingly, or like more so than say growing, right. I think like usually as as a consumer myself, I'm like, hey, goods are cheaper, isn't that good? Mm. Like, is is that actually? Am I right in thinking that, or is deflation a problem? I guess economically speaking. Yeah, deflation's a problem, a big problem. And it usually happens only when the economy is in like a very serious depression. We did have deflation in the 1930s, uh, for example. Deflation is the opposite of inflation. Instead of the average level of prices in the economy going up, the average level of prices actually falls over time. And it might seem like you're just going to get a bargain on everything. But uh, there's some various, various problems here. Number one is if prices are deflating, it usually means that the overall level of purchasing power in the economy is in terrible, terrible shape and that people have lost their jobs and lost their incomes and so on. So prices might be cheap, but that doesn't mean you can afford them if you haven't got a job. That was what it was like in the 1930s. And you can get some really weird consequences uh, from deflation. One of them is if you think prices are falling over time, then you might just put off buying anything because it's going to be cheaper next month than this month. And in fact, well, now you get to next month, hey, it's going to be even cheaper the next month. So maybe I'll wait a little longer. That uh, kind of irrational response can cause uh, an even deeper economic downturn because consumers stop buying, waiting for the price to fall even further. Uh, another thing that deflation does is it makes uh, the, uh, the burden of debts 
look much, much bigger over time. If the overall price of stuff, including your wages likely, is falling, then if you had, a, say, a credit card bill or a student loan or a car loan or, God help you, a mortgage, that mortgage doesn't shrink. The overall price level shrinks and income shrink, but the mortgage doesn't shrink. So then the cost of servicing those debts gets larger and larger relative to your income. So uh, deflation might seem like a bargain, you know, and of course you go to the dollar store and they're, you know, they're having a sale on something and you snap it up. But when that's happening across the whole economy, it's a, a sign that we're in, we're in deep doo-doo, to use a technical term in <laughs> economics, deep doo-doo. Very well put. I, I guess so then if we get to the causes of inflation, right? So you had mentioned mm. supply chains. I've I've also noticed there's like weird talk about the various uh, COVID benefits that happen, like the CERB money as one of the the acronyms of of the various things that were handed out. Uh, like, is that a cause of inflation, or or was it more of these supply chain issues? Or I guess what generally do you think that the recent cause of inflation was? It's so important that you ask this, Jody, because we have to take a deep dive into the causes of inflation. There's no one cause. And in fact, there's many different kinds of inflation that we've experienced uh, over time. And this topic has become so hyper-politicized. It's, um, uh, it's, it's in a way very dangerous. Uh, think about Pierre Polyev and his, uh, his band of new right conservatives. Uh, they've been trying to make hay out of the run-up in inflation uh, since it started. Uh, and they've had actually a whole series that, you know, it's almost a scattergun approach. They've had a whole series of things that they've blamed inflation for. They blamed the CERB. You mentioned the uh, uh, Canada Emergency Response Benefit Payments and the other income uh, payments. Remember, there was a whole alphabet soup of different things, some for students, some for people with disabilities, uh, et cetera, to help people through the pandemic. And those payments were incredibly important. They, the, the government did a great job of rolling them out very quickly and getting them to people who needed them. The programs weren't perfect, of course, but uh, at a moment of desperate uh, economic and social emergency, it was uh, incredibly important and helped people not get thrown out of their houses and help them be able to buy groceries, even though parts of the economy were shut down. Um, Polyev uh, blamed the, that, saying, you know, too much easy money to spend, that's driven up prices and people have lost the will to work. You know, well, that turned out to be nonsense because as soon as the economy reopened, everyone did go back to work. In fact, there are more Canadians working than ever uh, now. Then Polyev blamed uh, big federal deficits uh, for the problem, saying, you know, the government was spending too much money in general and that caused inflation. And there's various right-wing economists over time who've said that. Well, that theory didn't work because uh, guess what? The federal government's got a surplus right now. The deficit has disappeared very, very quickly in part because of the strong economic recovery after the pandemic and in part because of inflation. The government makes money off of inflation. That's the painful reality. So there's no deficit anymore, yet there's still inflation. Uh, then he blamed the Bank of Canada in a way for the wrong reason. The Bank of Canada uh, took some emergency measures during the pandemic as well to drive interest rates down to zero. And then uh, they engaged uh, for the first time in Canada in a, a set of policies often called quantitative easing, uh, which is just a kind of a highfalutin term for the fact that the, the Bank of Canada was buying government bonds and other uh, financial assets uh, in financial markets. The, the bank usually doesn't do that directly. They usually stand back and let private banks do that kind of stuff. But because the banking system was so uh, fragile during the pandemic, the Bank of Canada did it itself for a while. 
uh, other countries have been doing this for years. In Japan, they've been doing it more or less steadily for the last 30 years, and their inflation is uh, about the lowest in the industrialized world. So now the Bank of Canada has stopped that and, in fact, is doing the opposite. They're doing something called quantitative tightening, which means uh, they're selling those bonds, not buying them anymore, and that's uh, restricting how much money is circulating in the economy. Uh, so that theory didn't work. The latest theory from Polyev is to blame the carbon tax. You know, the carbon tax went up on April 1st, and now that's the cause of the inflation. So none of those things uh, are accurate. They're all uh, kind of designed to try and harvest the rage that uh, many Canadians rightly feel because their living standards are declining in the face of uh, inflation. Um, there's some debate uh, about what causes inflation in different circumstances among economists, but uh, in the case of the pandemic, it's pretty darn clear what happened. Uh, we had a pandemic. We shut down large portions of the economy. Uh, output and employment in Canada fell in early 2020 faster than it has ever fallen any time in history, worse than the 1930s. Luckily, it didn't stay down for long because um, all kinds of things happened. The government aid uh, made a difference. We got vaccines. We could reopen the economy pretty quickly, and we did. And we, you know, we're still repairing the damage from the pandemic. We're still not producing as much as we should in Canada, but it was a quick rebound. At first, in the pandemic, we actually did have deflation. That problem that we were talking about for a few months, average prices were falling, in part because nobody was allowed to go out and shop, right? So then, you know, any stores that were open got desperate and cut their prices. Uh, that changed very quickly. Once the economy reopened and we could go out spending again, first of all, we had some pent-up demands as consumers, you know, purchases that we had put off. We did have money in our pocket, you know, in part thanks to the CERB and in part just to savings. You know, when you can't spend for a few months, well, guess what? Your savings go up. So uh, consumers were ready to spend and they did. But the economy's supply side was not repaired. We had all kinds of uh, disruptions. You had international transportation problems. You had inventories. Uh, lots of industries just ran out of stuff. If anyone tried to buy a new car, for example, in that period, it was almost impossible to find one. None of the dealers had any vehicles on their lots. And the same was true in other products like uh, building supplies or home electronics because everyone wanted to watch Netflix during the pandemic. So uh, all of those things together, uh, you, you got the recipe for companies thinking, hey, there's a lot of demand out there and not so much supply. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to jack up the price. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, the energy price shock uh, after the war in Ukraine made things even worse, of course. Uh, gasoline and other energy prices were the, the biggest single source of inflation after COVID. Uh, they, the people who won from this were the businesses. You know, businesses had a situation where you had this whole population of desperate consumers and less competition just because there wasn't very much supply around. So you saw just a dramatic increase in business profits in Canada uh, as inflation took off after the pandemic. Uh, frankly, to the highest levels ever. You've never seen profits take up such a large share of our GDP uh, as in that first year after the pandemic. That is uh, reversing a little bit now. We're seeing profits come back down and we're seeing prices, uh, we're seeing inflation uh, come back down. So for the most part, this was not, you know, a gigantic catastrophe that will, you know, put us on the road to ruin. This was a, a, a couple of tough, difficult, uncertain years as the economy tried to regain its footing after the pandemic. And uh, eventually that's going to happen. With that, 
because you mentioned like the profits there, one of the interesting things is, and this is like, I have to check my own bias because there was a lot of like articles coming out uh, from like left-wing publications about how there was evidence of like profiteering, right? Rather mm. than a supply chain issue. Now- I think I wrote some of those articles. Yeah. <laughs> well, like to me, it's like, I, I'm, I'm just checking my bias. Maybe, maybe yeah. those were correct articles, right? But it's more of like, uh, I guess like to me, it's like, it's hard to parse because you have- I can understand if like you, you know, supply tightens because the supply mm-hmm. chains are messed up. So you increase your prices, but like, there's no like science to this, right? Like people are just choosing, Oh, can we, can we get away with this much increase mm-hmm. or not? Right. Yep. So like, how does, how can you tell as an economist when it's like, they like raised it too much or, or maybe they don't put it in that terms, but when is, when does it become like more profiteering as opposed mm. to a reaction to like a supply chain right. crisis or when do we put a moral terminology yeah. <laughs> on it? you know like profiteering that that sort of implies somebody's uh, very evil and uh, or an, another term you often hear is greedflation i've heard that term thrown around a lot and frankly i don't i don't like that term because it makes it sound like greed was just invented you know i i hate to tell you this but greed is a normal defining feature of capitalism that's sort of how capitalism works is private companies are out there trying to maximize their profits. And, you know, some people love it, some people hate it, but that is how the system works. And it wasn't invented with COVID. So what happened with the pandemic that allowed greed to, in, you know, in a way run amok, you know, go to town? Uh, companies always try to charge as much as they can, but uh, typically there's various factors that keep them in line to some extent, not, you know, not always, but to some extent. And one of them is the fact that consumers could go out and buy the stuff somewhere else if one store is too expensive. But that uh, that was not possible in a situation where supply was constrained and you couldn't find a car on a lot anywhere or you couldn't find building supplies in, in a lumber yard anywhere or you couldn't get the new big screen TV uh, at an electronic store anywhere. And that's where um, businesses, uh, in particularly in industries where they had a kind of a a pressure point, if you like, on how the overall economy um, worked and where consumers uh, or or even other businesses had to buy uh, their stuff. So uh, I don't like the term greedflation and, and I'm not even sure I like the term profiteering, but there is no doubt that companies did this. Nobody forced the oil companies to charge $2.25 a litre for gasoline. Nobody put a gun to their head and said, you must do this. There's not this thing called you know, market forces out there that somehow magically make that happen. These are companies who are monitoring their market on a moment-to-moment basis and charging what the market will bear. And the reality is that uh, because of the combination of supply chain disruptions and shortages of different products and consumer desperation um, and speculation uh, in the end, the energy price thing, you know, we were paying two twenty-five dollars a litre for gasoline that came from Canadian oil, was refined in Canada and distributed in Canada. There's nothing to do with Ukraine in that whole supply chain. It's all about global energy price speculation and how we in Canada have said to the oil industry, yeah, you can charge the world price no matter how much it costs you. So uh, those are the factors that allowed uh, for a while companies to soak it to us and they did so you know in a way number one we shouldn't be surprised that that happened but number two we shouldn't assume that it's a natural or inevitable result there's actual human choices the choices of the people who own those businesses to soak it to the rest of us at a moment of great economic and social crisis and you know that's where i think a a bit of moralizing is quite uh, legitimate 
you know, it's not like we've just invented uh, greed or this whole idea it is in fact a normal feature, but um, at different times uh, it gets out of control. And, uh, you know, responsible government policies would recognize that and try to limit it. You know, when we fought a war in, in the 1940s, the government said, we're not going to allow companies to charge what the market will bear because this is an emergency. And they put in place price controls on different uh, strategic uh, products and services and took other measures to try and limit the extent of profiteering in the war. And frankly, we should have done the same uh, in this war, in the war against the uh, coronavirus. Is there a reason why governments don't introduce price controls or is that just, you know, our current neoliberal way of letting corporations, you know, be free to, to jack up the prices however they want? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a reason they don't because businesses don't like it and they, you know, they don't, you know, uh, businesses hold tremendous sway over policymaking and governments uh, are reluctant to take them on. Uh, head to head. So, um, you know, there are some areas in society where we do have price controls. So the idea of price controls is not totally foreign. And many provinces in Canada have rent controls, for example, which limit how much the rents can go up, at least with the same tenant in place uh, from one year to the next. In in British Columbia, where I live, it, the, the government had a 2% limit on rent increases this year. And that's a very, very good idea. And it, it does limit the extent to which landlords can take advantage of short, shortage of supply, which we have, to jack up uh, prices. The problem is, number one, the rent controls aren't strong enough. And number two, um, the, we still have to address that long-run housing, affordable housing supply issue, which we haven't done because we've cut back all the spending on on affordable housing and social housing and nonprofit housing of different kinds. Another area we often have uh, price controls is energy. Uh, most of our energy industry is regulated so that uh, companies that uh, happen to own a pipeline or happen to own a, an electricity distribution network, uh, when it's in private hands, it should be in public hands, but in some provinces it's private, they have regulations limiting how much they can charge. We don't have that for the most part in the oil and gas uh, sector. Um, the gas utilities are regulated in how much they can charge for the transportation of the gas but the gas itself is subject to uh, open market pressures as is oil and things made from oil interestingly we do have in in eastern canada in the maritime provinces and in quebec we do have limits on gasoline prices uh, in terms of how fast they can increase um, so you know in a way that just delays uh the the greedflation if you like but it doesn't prevent it but um, the principle of price controls in strategic commodities is a, is a legitimate one. And I think there's a, a growing awareness of, uh, among economists around the world, at least those that are open-minded enough to think about it, that we should have done more of that in the, in the moment of crisis uh, during the pandemic to short-circuit uh, some of the uh, inflationary impulses uh, that came. And some countries did. Germany had uh, price controls on natural gas. Australia imposed price controls on electricity and natural gas. So uh, this can happen, but it takes a government with gumption to stand up and say, I'm going to you know, put limits on how much private businesses are going to profit in this moment. And they'll face all kinds of you know, outrage and uh, dire threats about how um, you know, they're returning to Soviet central planning and, and other such things. That literally was the language in Australia. I'm familiar with the debate in Australia when the government imposed some price controls in the gas sector. You know, it was going back to dictatorial central planning, et cetera, et cetera. So you'd need a government that was um, 
uh, progressive and willing to take on that fight. And we didn't have that for the most part in Canada. It seems like the only fix that is being offered is this idea of a, a rate or interest rate increase. And th this was done at, at various points in during the, the pandemic and also uh, after inflation was happening. And I was reading even like an article uh, that I think was released like yesterday by CTV uh, about how I think Scotia Bank is saying we still need to increase the inf uh, the interest rate. So why is it that this is the only solution they mm -hmm. have to offer? And what, why do they think that will combat inflation? I guess. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's a really important question, Jody. Again, just like your question about where did the 2% come from? Because we take these things for granted without actually thinking them through and, and wondering, well, what, is that honestly the only thing we can do? Uh, so uh, the, the tradition in this inflation targeting system that we talked about earlier that we've had for about 30 years now is that the central bank set has, is given a target, in Canada's case, 2%. And then they're given one giant hammer, which is their tool to go out and achieve the target. And that giant hammer is the interest rate. The central bank controls the interest rate. Um, it's, uh, it's not the interest rate that you and I pay on our credit card or our car loan or anything like that. It's the interest rate that banks pay when they borrow money from the central bank. And then, and that kind of sets the general tone of interest rates for all the other things that happen uh, in the financial system. And uh, the thinking is that if you increase the interest rate, you make it more expensive to borrow. And uh, what this does is it, uh, it, is, it reduces how much money consumers are willing to spend, you know, on anything that you have to borrow for. It's now more expensive, so you might put off that new car or the home appliance or the home reno or buying a home in particular. It also reduces what businesses uh, will spend because businesses generally borrow money when they're going to make a big investment. And then even without actually changing the spending behavior, the higher interest costs also limit how much money people have to spend on other stuff. So um, anyone in Canada who has a variable rate mortgage understands this painfully right now. They might have taken the mortgage out at 2%. And if they have to refinance it now, they're going to have to pay 6% for it. And that difference is going to mean hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month that now they have to pay extra to the bank, not buy food and clothing and shelter and other stuff with. So in that regard, even if you don't change your behavior per directly because of higher interest rates, you just don't have money to spend anymore. It's a way of sucking a whole bunch of purchasing power out of the economy. Now, uh, this might be effective if the problem was too much purchasing power in the economy, you know. If the problem was uh, Canadians had too much money to spend, and this is why inflation took off, then maybe this would be effective. And uh, the interest rate solution is generally intended for situations of, of what's called excess demand, too much, too much buying power out there. But we've just talked, uh, Jody, about how this inflation after COVID was not about too much excess demand. We did have government support Canadians with the emergency payments, but those emergency payments were phased out very quickly. They're long gone. It's ancient history. And uh, disposable incomes in Canada are actually lower than they would have been if the pre-COVID trend had continued. So I completely reject the idea that the problem here is Canadians have too much money. Even worse is the idea that too many Canadians are working. This is the theory that we're hearing also from the Bank of Canada. The, the governor of the bank, uh, Mr. Tiff Macklem, 
has said explicitly, the unemployment rate is too low and I'm going to get it up. Higher interest rates uh, are going are to slow down the economy and increase the unemployment rate. That is astounding to hear a, a, a leading economic policymaker say unemployment's too low. I got to get it up, right? Usually it's supposed to be the other way around. Yet in his theory that the whole problem is caused by too much purchasing power, well, most Canadians get their purchasing power from their job. This is the point. This is why we drag our asses out of bed on Monday morning and go off and do the job to get a little purchasing power to support ourselves with. So uh, in that regard, blaming Canadians for having too much money or too much work just seems utterly misplaced. But given the entrenched nature of this inflation targeting regime that we've had since the early 90s, it's almost done on a knee-jerk basis. You know, we don't even have to think about it. Inflation is up quick, get the interest rate up. So we've had, I think, nine interest rate increases in Canada. It took the interest rate uh, of the central bank from 0.25% in the pandemic to 4.5% now. Again, you and I pay much more than that for anything that we borrow. Uh, the bank in January said we're going to just uh, pause for the moment and see what's happening. But because the economy does not seem to be heading into a recession yet, and the unemployment rate is still low, and inflation is is much lower than it was, but it's at you know around four and a half percent right now. That's still too high by the bank's target. Then uh, I suspect that that Scotia Bank report you you mentioned is correct. I suspect we are going to see more interest rate hikes uh, in the months ahead. I do wonder, because like just in your explanation here, it sounds like if you, I guess, dampen the economy or the ability of companies to spend by increasing uh, interest rates, and that also causes unemployment. So it's it's hurting workers. But like, is it all? It also sounds like it's hurting companies. But like, why? Uh, why do it? Then? <laughs> like, mm. just to meet this magical threshold of 2% mm. or like, I, I, I maybe I'm missing something. Yeah, well, it's hurting some companies, no doubt about it. It's benefiting some other companies. Take a look at the bank profits right now, and you'll say, oh, yeah, you know, this isn't so bad for the banking industry because they're uh, soaking up all this extra money right now. Um, but uh, you're right. It, that, that, it, it does raise another fundamental question, which is uh, how much priority should we put on that 2% target? Um, uh, the bank says everything. Everything is on that 2% target. They have said very explicitly, we are going to get inflation back to 2% no matter what. They use those exact words, no matter what. And that is code word for we will throw the whole economy into a recession and put hundreds of thousands of Canadians out of their jobs and tens of thousands of Canadians out of their homes if that is what's required to get back to our 2% target. And, you know, I don't think anybody ever said that is the one and only economic goal and everything else must be sacrificed to it. You know, for sure, we do want to manage inflation at a level that's reasonable and tolerable, whether that's 2% or 5%. I'm not sure to tell you the truth, but um, it is one priority, but one priority among many. And the idea that the uh, Bank of Canada has the authority to basically hold the whole economy hostage in order to meet that target, I think uh, should be challenged. And again, I think this is where this painful experience over the last year or two, in a way, should be a, a kick in the pants for us all to think about monetary policy and inflation policy in ways that we haven't for several decades. We got used to this 2% world and there was problems with it. The economy was not optimal by any means and there's big uh, unfairness associated with that model. 
but we did kind of get used to it. And now I think we're in a situation where we can think about these things and hopefully debate them. Uh, through our Center for Future Work, uh, we published with the Canadian Labour Congress, uh, I think a very important paper on um, understanding why the economy is managed in this way, uh, understanding what's wrong with that way, and thinking about alternative, fairer approaches to managing inflation uh, using more than just interest rates. So, you know, the problem with the interest rate, when you give somebody a hammer and nothing else, everything looks like a nail. And that's the, the kind of the, uh, the knee-jerk uh, reaction that we've had from the Bank of Canada. Inflation went up. Okay, you know, get out the interest rate hammer. And it's, it's, uh, it's a very painful hammer, and it's a very non-discriminating hammer. You know, it takes purchasing power away, but not necessarily from those who can afford to lose it, you know. For example, even if you accepted the idea that the problem of inflation came from too much excess demand, too much spending power, well, there's other ways you could suck spending power out of the economy. You could put in place a temporary tax. You could say everyone who earns over 100000 a year is going to pay an extra 10% in tax this year in order to get inflation down. What's wrong with that? That would be much fairer than the high interest rate, which is, I think, more random and tends to target poorer people. Uh, why wouldn't that happen? Because the rich people would be outraged. That's why. So this is how, you know, through, in a way, funny, funny accidents of history, we have settled on the interest rate as this all-important um, mechanism. But, you know, this is a moment when we should be saying, is that the only way to control inflation, A? And B, how much emphasis should we put on controlling inflation versus the other things that are important uh, in life? The, the other uh, dimension of this that is especially perverse, if the problem came from supply disruptions and shortages rather than from excess spending power, high interest rates actually make the problem worse because you're discouraging new supply. You're discouraging people from building new homes. You're discouraging companies from investing in new capacity when the interest rate is high. And that means it's um, doubly painful to try and get inflation down that way. It can happen if you, you know, if you make the economy weak enough, inflation will come down. There's no doubt about that. But um, you're doing it in a way by locking in a condition of underperformance um, on the supply side, uh, rather than addressing those supply pinch points that companies have taken advantage of uh, and trying to bring down inflation that way. I do want to sort of like pivot back or like end where I sort of like started this conversation, which is about like wages. And I know like even as I mentioned at the beginning as well, from my own experience, like back when inflation was still around 2%, that in the union context, when you're bargaining and negotiating, it was very easy to to see the chart of like the increase in inflation and your wages nowhere near uh, inflation, right? That maybe that's a little harder when you you aren't collectively bargaining, so you don't you're not sitting there analyzing this information, right? But I guess like some of the things that like interest me is this complaint that I also see that, and this happened with PSAC as well, where they were asking for a what I would say is like a big increase in their wage. Uh, that's how it was framed, right? But like when you consider how big inflation is, it's not that big of a wage, but it's being portrayed in the media as like mm -hmm. it'll either hurt inflation further by, I guess, increasing spending power or, or something. But like mm -hmm. there seems to be this general like 
pushback from certain sources and maybe this is again it's uh corporations and rich people <laughs> wanting to uh you know mm. promote for their benefit but like why why is there pushback towards these like wage increases mm -hmm. well um we we naturally have a situation where workers are desperate to try and increase their wages to keep up with inflation for the obvious reason you know that if everything is five or six or seven percent more expensive than it used to be this year then you better have five or six or seven percent more money to spend just to buy what you bought before so uh, in economic terms that's called your real wage your wage adjusted for the cost of everything that you buy and the real wage in canada has been falling since this inflation took off you know normally over time your wages should grow faster than inflation not just keep up with inflation they should grow faster than inflation for the reason that uh, our economy is developing, technology is improving, our productivity is growing, and we should capture a share of those benefits in the form of a higher real wage over time. This is how our standard of living increased uh, over the decades. Um, it's harder to do when you know the deck is stacked against workers. You've got um, you know corporations with lots of power to outsource and um, move their operations to low-cost countries uh, overseas and um, attack workers who are trying to form a union, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a struggle, but in general, your wage should grow faster than inflation. Um, that was happening modestly in Canada until the pandemic. Real wages were growing slowly, but growing. Uh, then with the uh, takeoff of inflation in the last two years, we've seen real wages decline on average in Canada by about 3%. Uh, that means uh, typical wages have lagged behind inflation by a cumulative total of around 3% right now. Um, and that means your real standard of living, the stuff you can buy, you had to shrink by 3% because you just don't have the money anymore. Uh, so whether you're uh, in a union or not, you're, you're keeping an eye on that. And, uh, you know, you might not have the, the statistics and the spreadsheets in front of you, but I can assure you 99% of workers know full well their wage doesn't go as far as it used to. So this is leading to greater demands on uh, employers to increase wages and 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 the world of collective bargaining about one third of Canadian workers have a union. Uh, so uh, for them, uh, it shows up at the bargaining table where the union is going to make demands to try and keep up with inflation. Uh, the PSAC um, uh, conflict that you mentioned is a good example because, you know, there you had the union making a demand for uh, 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 what was reported in the media is about 13.5% increase in wages uh, over a three-year period. And most of the three years had already passed. Um, that is to say that the contract had expired uh, almost two years ago. So in a way, they were trying to make up for lost time with that 13.5% wage increase. Well, just think about it. Inflation, average inflation in Canada in 2021 was about 3.5%. In 2022, it was about 6.5%. And uh, this year, it's probably going to be on average 4 to 5%. So that 13.5% over three years was not actually even a raise. It barely kept up with inflation in the period that was covered by the contract. Yet, you're quite right, Jody. It was pilloried in the newspaper headlines as a ridiculous demand and greedy union workers. And who are those public servants anyway? Don't they know how, how lucky they are to have a job? Uh, and then in the end, they settled, you know, um, with the uh, federal government. They ended up agreeing on a four-year agreement. Um, and, and frankly, uh, and a combination of wage increases and lump sum payments in that tentative uh, agreement. 
Um, so it was not a, it was not a rich contract on wage grounds, but they were standing up and fighting to try and protect their wages against inflation. And this is what we've seen in other uh, collective bargaining, both in the private sector and the public sector uh, across the, the country. Employers hate this. So employers will come up with every argument uh, to try and beat back the demands for higher wages, including you're being greedy and you're going to make inflation worse. Now, how does higher wages make inflation worse? Um, it, it can, uh, if again, if the problem was too much purchasing power out there, then getting more money to spend would make uh, purchasing power stronger. That's the reality. But wages in Canada have lagged behind inflation from the outset. So wages have actually been a disinflationary force. Wages are moderating inflation because they've been slower than inflation. Workers are just trying to keep up at this point. So to argue that this is uh, inflationary, especially when the core problem was not from too much spending power anyway. It was from the uh, supply chains and shortages and other disruptions from the pandemic and the ability of companies to take advantage of that, to fatten their prices and their profits. That was the problem. So wages, uh, uh, increasing wages is not going to make it worse. I, I can argue that actually collective bargaining to try and reasonably and gradually and sustainably ensure that wages keep up with prices. I can argue that's actually part of the solution to inflation, not the cause of it. I wonder, like, because, and maybe maybe I'm incorrect in this impression too, but I got this sense that the worry was that if wages increase, then the company would, or, or companies generally who are now paying workers more money are now themselves going to increase their prices and therefore contribute to inflation by making up for, like, lost income paying for wages. Is that at all true, or... Yeah, this is the uh, the great menace of the so-called wage price spiral that uh, haunts the central bankers uh, of the world. You know, those who studied economics in the 1980s and, and uh, learned about how terrible it was in the 1970s when workers demanded higher wages and then companies passed on the cost of higher wages in higher prices and then workers demanded still higher wages. And first of all, that's not a true story of what happened in the 1970s anyways, but this is the mythology, the myth, this, you know, it's like a boomer nightmare, Jody, you know, these poor, these poor economists of a certain age, myself included, studied this ad nauseum in the 70s and the 80s. And, and they came away with one lesson, never let the wage price spiral rear its head again. And uh, it, the whole theory just doesn't apply in today's situation. We saw prices shoot up, even though wages did not shoot up. Okay, so the prices went up, not because wages went up, but because companies could take advantage of a moment to fatten their profits. So who says that now that wages are coming up, prices must go up as well? You know, that, that wasn't what caused the inflation in the first place. There's no guarantee that higher wages must be passed on in the form of higher prices especially when you think that profit margins in Canada are at all-time record highs. As a share of GDP, profits have never been higher, which tells you something. You know, we've been through this enormous catastrophe called the pandemic, and corporate Canada has never had it better. So first of all, that tells you about how our society is upside down. Um, but secondly, it shows you there's lots of room for businesses to absorb higher wage costs without passing on anything in higher prices. And in fact, we're going to see this. We are seeing this. We have seen inflation come down from 8% to 4.5% in the last year. 
even though the unemployment rate hasn't changed and wage inflation has sped up. So inflation uh, in, in a, a increases, average uh, year-over-year increases in wages in Canada's overall labor market are currently running at about 5%. They're actually just now uh, running a little bit faster than prices for the first time in this whole episode. Yet inflation is still coming down. So this idea that, you know, there's an automatic and in, inevitable link between winning higher wages and then getting still higher prices um, is wrong. We do not have to accept current and fat, current, current fat profit margins in Canada as sacrosanct. Those profit margins have to come back to earth. And unions negotiating higher wages is one of the ways they're going to come back to earth. What I'm getting from this, too, is like it, it's really making stark the sort of like competing interests between, mm. you know, the company or employer yeah. versus uh, the employees. And I mean, like, what what better argument for unionization <laughs> representation mm. uh, than that? You know, realizing that, like, maybe maybe these uh, companies don't necessarily have your best interests at heart as an employer or employee. That view is so important, Jody. Like, um, when the inflation started, we got all kinds of stupid pap published by the Bank of Canada and other other groups saying inflation is a problem for all of us and we're all in this together and it hurts all of us and they even put out stupid little cartoons you should see some of the things that the bank of canada published as part of their propaganda to try and keep canadians on side with their painful mission you know uh, almost to suck us into saying yeah stick it to us bank of canada because we're all in this together so i'm glad to pay several hundred dollars extra per month to the bank because we're all in this together well, what about the bank? Uh, the, the bank seems to be doing pretty good through this. And what about the general corporate sector in Canada? Their profits have never been higher. Uh, so we aren't all in this together. That's nonsense. That's ideological nonsense trying to get us to put up and shut up. And uh, we should absolutely, and in our research at the Center for Future Work, we have documented the rise in corporate profit margins in a whole range of industries. Uh, led first and foremost by the energy sector, the petroleum sector, whose profits went up a thousand percent, a thousand, not a hundred. There's not, it's not a typo. We didn't accidentally stick that zero at the end. It's a thousand percent with the uh, war in Ukraine and the uh, energy price shock. And then uh, down to real estate to developers and banks and building supply uh, uh, companies and miners and yes, supermarkets. Supermarkets are on that list too as a, a vested interest that has fattened their profit margins dramatically through this inflation. So this idea that we're all in this together and companies are just passing on their own higher input costs is, um, uh, is nonsense. And we should reject it and we should stand up for ourselves because they certainly have. I think that is a great note to end it on. <laughs> we should stand up for ourselves. Uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I, do you have anything you want to promote? Is there anything you're, you're, you're working on right now? Or where, where can people find your work? Well, our uh, website uh, is centerforfuturework.ca. So that's uh, easy. And uh, all of our research is open access there. And we've published a lot in the last two years on macroeconomics, inflation, interest rates, and the risk of a coming recession. And uh, we'll be putting more up there. You can also um, go there and sign up for our contact list if you'd like to get regular uh, updates. And um, uh, I'm really grateful, Jody, that you had me on. Thank you so much.
Thanks again to Jim. You can find his published work at centerforfuturework.ca. You can also follow him on Twitter at Jimbo Stanford. Lastly, if you enjoy this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash labor intensive. If you become a member, you can have access to the patron-only podcast that I do with Eric Wickham called Bad Books by Bad People. You might know Eric from being a co-host of the Big Shiny Takes podcast, which is an excellent podcast that you should all check out on the Harbinger Media Network. So if that interests you, go check it out. But thank you for listening, and I will see you next week. This podcast is part of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community of progressive podcasts. Visit their website at harbingermedianetwork.com to listen to other incredible left-leaning podcasts. Thanks as well to Dan Van Winden, who produced the music for this podcast. If you want to follow Labor Intensive on social media, find links to our social media accounts in the show notes of this episode.